New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. An 88-year-old pianist, composer, and teacher, Seymour Bernstein, sums up his life philosophy in this way. I don't believe in heaven or hell or the afterlife, but I do think it's possible to achieve moments of heaven here on earth. What is needed is to become attuned to one's spiritual reservoir, to nourish oneself in solitude to develop the ability to experience self-love, to be open to the gifts of soul friends and animals, and finally, to plumb the depths of one's desire and passion in an artistic way, allowing that artistic expression to influence how we live. Our guest today, Andrew Harvey, spent hours in conversation with this master musician and teacher, and today we'll be exploring the insights Andrew received from this friendship. Andrew Harvey is an internationally acclaimed poet, novelist, translator, mystical scholar, and spiritual teacher. He is the founder-director of the Institute of Sacred Activism and is the author of many books, including the Direct Path, Creating a Personal Journey to the Divine, Using the World's Spiritual Traditions. The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. Teachings of Rumi. And Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour. Join us for the next hour as we explore the intersection of life and art with our guest, Andrew Harvey. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Andrew, welcome. <laughs> Lovely to be with you again after so many years. Oh, it's my too many, years. too many years and my my deep, deep pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Andrew, I'd like to begin if you could just share with us how you first met Seymour. Oh, that would be a huge pleasure. I've just produced this book, Play Life More Beautifully, and the whole romance began about six years ago. I'd been hearing a great deal about Seymour from a great mutual friend of ours, Tony Zito. And Tony was having piano lessons from Seymour. Seymour is a legendary piano teacher. He was a concert pianist. He gave it up to devote his life for teaching. And I said to Tony, look, you've been talking to me about Seymour for years. It is time to meet him. I cannot listen to any more ecstasy about him. I've got to encounter this phenomenon myself. 
Tony's also a very close friend of Ethan Hawke. And Ethan is an old friend of mine. And Ethan is the very an actor. famous actor yes. and now director. Uh, yes, great. What happened was is that Tony gave a dinner party and invited both Ethan and Seymour to join myself and him and his wife. And I shall never forget the first moment I saw Seymour when he came through the door in Tony's apartment. I saw this beautiful, beatific, serene, glowing man of 85 standing in the doorway. And immediately I felt wave after wave after wave of love for him because he has such a serenely luminous presence. You cannot imagine how it is to be with him. I call it the Seymour effect, <laughs> like the bark effect. There's yes. Stones fall in love with him, trees fall in love with him, animals fall in love with him, old ladies, young ladies, waiters. He has that natural generosity of soul that glows. That evening was an extraordinary evening because Seymour was seated next to Ethan and I watched how Ethan and Seymour fell deeply spiritually in love. They were almost touching heads. Ethan was talking to Seymour about one of the great problems in his life, which was stage fright. And Seymour had suffered as a concert pianist from stage fright and was able to give Ethan extraordinarily tender and precise advice. A year later, Seymour played for Ethan and I and Tony in his one-bedroom apartment in the Upper West Side. And at the end of it, I was crying. It was such an extraordinary, holy performance because he was playing Beethoven and Schumann and Chopin and Bach. And nobody plays with the depth of tenderness and the depth of spacious spiritual wisdom that Seymour does. He was a very great pianist when he was on the, on the boards, but he's remained a great pianist. And he's able to communicate the soul of music in a way that I have never experienced. And I love music and know quite a bit about it. And so at the end of this performance, we were all crying. And I turned to Ethan and I said, Ethan, listen to me. You have got to make a documentary about this man. And Ethan said, well, I've never made a documentary. I said, you're a genius. <laughs> you can do anything. Do it. And he agreed. And over the next couple of years... He made Seymour an introduction, his first documentary. It's gone all over the world. It became a global phenomenon. Seymour has become, as he loves to say, the Jewish Dalai Lama, dispensing wisdom <laughs> to exactly. all who listen. And it's been an overwhelming experience to see this very private man become a soul friend for hundreds of thousands of people. I want to say that if people want to see that documentary, I was able to find it on Netflix. Yes. It was very exciting. Yes. That, oh, because after reading your book, I thought, I have to see this documentary. And it's, it's really quite lovely. It's lovely. It's yes. a masterpiece, I think. What Ethan has done is so precious because he could have put so much more of himself into it. But he has such respect for Seymour and such adoration that he was able to create a film which is entirely setting Seymour and enabling Seymour to speak gently but very clearly about his very profound vision of life. People all over the world have seen this documentary. It's been played in Reykjavik, in Peru, in Australia, in Belgium, and Seymour's had hundreds of thousands of emails. Last year, I said to Seymour, look, You've now become the Jewish Dalai Lama to the world, which pleases him <laughs> immensely. Let's do a book of conversations together because 
we talk endlessly on the phone. I've been to dinner with him many times. We share so many passions for friendship, for spirituality, for music, for teaching. I said, let's, you and I get together in your place in Maine, which is this simple, beautiful wooden house that he has on a cliff in Maine, and let's spend a week and let's explore everything we can possibly think of. Oh, it's so wonderful. I, just, <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And now you're, you're mentioning your love of this wonderful man, and that's one of his, his philosophical thoughts was yes. um, to, that finding these soul friends, yes. you know, and I, I just think of you and Seymour as, as true soul friends. Yes, and I wanted are. to ask you, like, he's a master teacher. Andrew, I consider you a master teacher. I Thank mean, you. you both you both have that in common because you both are what I would call, and you mentioned this in the book, you use the word, you're both charming. Oh, thank you. I love it. And the word charming, if you listen to that word, it's like to be charmed, to to be um spellbound. Oh, you know, thank you. and it's mm. it's the way you're an artist with words. I mean, that's one of your artistry. I hope and so. oh, you're very much so. But I wanted to ask you, how how do we find these soul friends? When 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 how do we discover them? What advice do you have? Well, I think that the Holy Spirit, the divine, is the best pimp. So <laughs> the first thing, if you want to find and more soul friends, pray for them to come to you. Pray for them to find you. Pray to God to arrange the circumstances that you can meet those who are truly on your deepest vibratory wavelength. So that's the first thing. I think we're in a time where sacred friendship is even more important than it's ever been. Things are so hard. Life is so ferocious. The world is going through this unbelievable cataclysmic falling apart. And in a time like this, if you want to live happily and enjoy and with purpose, you really do need to find in your life the people who will sustain you and encourage you, come what may. I think the other thing is, is to truly follow your gut because in my experience, you fall in friendship with the same intensity as that you fall in love. You have to have the guts when you really meet somebody who thrills you by their being, who elevates you by their soul. You have to have the guts to really say, we mustn't waste this meeting. Let's meet again. Keep up the connection. Don't let it fall into desuetude, really go for it. So that we, we need a kind of confidence. We need a guts, we need courage, we need shamelessness of the highest, sweetest kind. We need to be able to say, look, I know I don't know you very well, but I have to see you again. I am in love with your spirit and that's it. So let's cut the nonsense and get down to an authentic Radiant sharing friendship. Let's oh, do it. Great advice. Great advice. Don't you think so? Because oh, I think sometimes I we're too shy. It's like when you meet somebody you're very attracted to. Sometimes you think, oh my God, the last thing I need is any more drama. I'm going to get out. And then you miss the chance of perhaps not necessarily having a sexual love affair, but having a deep soul affair. Go for it. How often do you meet people who really thrill you? And you know, when you do, jump, jump. Leap. And you know, Andrew, I feel like sometimes. That kind of friendship is more intimate than a physical, you know, sexual Absolutely. Uh, relationship. It's I think it deep, is. deep, deep. I think 
that kind of friendship is what Goethe calls, and we talk about this, elective affinities. Beings who meet in that way are meeting in a musical love field, and they resonate with that field. And they have very many deep, subtle connections, sometimes karmic connections, sometimes connections of culture, which will emerge in the course of the friendship. But once you come into the field of someone like that, you always know it. You always know it because your whole being starts to pulse with joy. Exactly. And then when you have the grace to develop a friendship like that, you find that you can say anything. I could say anything to Seymour. If you overheard our conversations on the phone, which go on for hours, we talk about everything you can possibly imagine. We tell silly jokes. We gossip about pianists. We talk about the world. We talk about memories that we've had from childhood. There's nothing left out because we feel we give each other complete permission. And what I notice is that you don't always agree. No, no, no. So it's not a matter of finding someone that agrees with everything you're saying or who has had your same experience. No, and how boring it would be if somebody agreed with you. I love people disagreeing with me because then I learned something. I learned a great deal, for example, in the book when we had our long and intense discussion about forgiveness. I have chosen to forgive my mother for her wildness and difficulties Seymour had a very frightening father who was abusive on every level, and he didn't forgive him. So we're going to talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Andrew Harvey, and he's the author of Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, andrewharvey.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Andrew Harvey. He's the author of The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, and also Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour. And right now we're talking about Seymour Bernstein, 88 years old now. Yes, 88 uh, years young. Young, young, yes. uh, a pianist, a teacher extraordinaire. And uh, we're talking about the conversation that you had with him, Andrew, and you got to a point, you were talking about forgiveness. And yes. you were able to forgive your mother, and he was saying he he had some other thoughts on well, that for himself. What I was doing was really exploring his relationship with his father, because 
if you read the book, you really, you'll see that we go into almost everything except the recipe for celery soup. We talk about <laughs> everything, music, yes. life, God. But the most important section in a way for me is the section in which we explore Seymour's youth and how it came to be that a junkman's son in New Jersey became one of the world's great pianists and one of the most luminous spiritual teachers as a piano teacher. And we started to talk about his father and I realized, my God, Seymour had an atrocious father, an abusive father, sexually, emotionally, psychologically. And I asked Seymour, have you forgiven him? And Seymour said, absolutely not. I have not forgiven him. And that actually initially shocked me because here is somebody so benign, so loving, who's so tolerant of everybody's peccadilloes and fantasies and idiocies. The fact that he shouldn't have forgiven his father really worried me. So I said, why haven't you forgiven him? And he told me what had happened. And then we had a long discussion about forgiveness. For me, forgiveness is the crown jewel of all of the mystical systems. And I've learned so much from the Dalai Lama's attitude to the Chinese. And of course, I am on the Christ path and I adore Jesus and I venerate Jesus's own teachings on forgiveness. I had a very difficult mother and I've really worked hard over the last 20 years to come to a, a deep peace with her because I really felt it was essential for my own spiritual evolution and for her. Seymour really disputed this. He said, no, these people are dangerous people. You don't forgive dangerous, evil people. You separate yourself from them, but don't pretend that you've really forgiven them. So we hashed this out in the course of that conversation at first, I was upset by what Seymour said, inwardly. But then I realized forgiveness isn't something you can impose on people. Everybody has the right to choose their own journey. And Seymour's attitude to forgiveness I came to find was deeply true for him, mature for him, had clearly resulted in the kind of radiant emotional and spiritual health that he exemplifies at this time of life. So what worked for him worked for him. And I had to come to a place where I completely accepted and embraced that. And that was a real journey for me. I, I, it's reflected in the book. And Seymour had uh, respect for you for yes. it's not that he said what he tried to convince you to be otherwise no, either. No, no. Isn't that what friendship is about? It isn't real friendship about truly listening to the other in terms of the other's own life and temperament and really stepping out of the way yourself so that you can hear at the deepest levels what they're saying and where it's coming from and accept it. And and, and you'll learn something from that. It, it, yes. it does something, it expands our own view and, and our own landscape in some way. Well, it did for me because I realized that Subtly, I was rather a fundamentalist of forgiveness. I was a <laughs> dogmatic forgiver. And I realized that something that actually is very intrusive in others' lives. How dare Andrew suggest to Seymour that he had to do this or that? Why shouldn't Seymour have the right to do exactly what was best for him in terms of his own life? And you only find those things out if you really engage in profound soul listening to another being. And it's soul listening, and it's, it's, there's a trust there 
in the friendship. Yes. You know that you're you're not trying to change each other, that you can sit there in that difference. Absolutely. Not just sit there in that difference, but revel in the difference. For me, my conversations with Seymour are like musical duets, as if he if I'm playing the violin and he's playing the piano. And there are times when the piano and the violin have to come together. And there are times when it's absolutely essential that they're not together, that they're playing their own thing. And isn't that what friendship is, is to establish a real ground of harmony and then truly celebrate the difference of another. Isn't, and in music, isn't it wonderful when you get that chord that's slightly dissonant? Yes. And it's just, it, there's an excitement there. It's yes. just like, oh. Well, it's, it's not an, an excitement. It's a thrilling door into a deeper harmony. Because if it's all just sweet chords playing after another, it sounds like that boring. dreary New Age music, which drives me crazy. It's beige carpeting music, I call it. But real music and great music works with dissonance to explore deeper reconciliation, more profound harmony. So even if you don't agree with a friend about something important, the fact that you don't agree can lead you to deepen your love for them so that you find a richer and deeper harmony with and them. And there has to be respect there for yes. that to well, happen. With Seymour, the yes. respect was yes. immediate. And I think for... Him for me too. We just Absolutely. naturally adore, respect, salute, honor each other. It's given. Beautiful. And from that, we can dance in any direction we want. One of the things that I mentioned in the introduction were some of the philosophies that Seymour yes. had, which I know you resonate with yes. so well. And one of the first ones was um, it had to do with solitude. Oh, yes. So yes. I, I would love for you to speak about the importance of solitude in our lives. Well, you've known me for a long time, Justine. You know that I love people and I love my friends and I enjoy convivial meetings very much. But I'm also an intensely solitary person because I'm a mystic and because I'm a writer. And the same is true of Seymour. He's very engaged with his friends. He adores his friends and he's very funny and warm and embracing. But his life, his creative, his spiritual life depends, like mine does, on many deep stretches of solitary contemplation. For me, solitude has three main profound uses and purposes. The first is that it allows me to connect with the great me, the great self, the divine self, which I do in mystical practice and in contemplation. The second is, is that it allows me to gain perspective on the dramas of the world and also the dramas that are constantly going on in my group of friends as in everybody's group of friends. And I find that if I don't have enough solitude, I won't be able to think deeply enough to be able to be of any help to my friends going through whatever they're going through. And the third really radiant gift of solitude is I think that it enables me to get in touch with my subconscious and with the deep feelings and memories that I'm working with whenever I'm working on a, a piece of work, whenever I'm writing. You can't write a major work without going into a monastery and in a monastery <laughs> yeah. because you're really summoning up 
the depths of your whole life, the depths of your whole subconscious, the depths of your whole wisdom. And you won't be able to do that act of invocation unless you truly surrender to solitude. And sometimes it's painful and demanding and solitude turns into loneliness and you feel, my God, why am I chosen this crazy life? But more and more I find as I grow older, my solitude is my greatest friend because I find the friend in my solitude. I'm struck by, there was one mention in the book of of something that you did once. And I I just (laughs) thought it was so beautiful. You were in Paris, yes. and there was a Velasquez. Yes, uh, it was last year, actually. Was it last year? Yes. And, and, and there was a... Oh, I'm glad you liked oh, that piece. I, was... I did. So, so say something about your, your attending that exhibit. Well, I love painting, and my favorite painter is Velasquez. I have many painters that I adore. I love Rembrandt, I love Vermeer, I love Piero de la Francesca, I love Cezanne, but for me... Velasquez is the master. He's the starkest, most ferocious, most sublime, and most nakedly humane of all painters, as far as I'm concerned. And I came to Paris, and I was about to teach in the mystery school in Chartres, and I saw, oh my God, there are 50 major Velasquez's. There are only 100 in the world, and they're all in Paris at this moment. And at the time, I was... Tremendously tempted to take some of my great Parisian friends with me. And then I said, no, I'm not going to take anybody. I am going to go at the earliest moment in the morning when it opens. And I'm going to be alone with Velasquez all day. I'm just going to sit with these unbelievable masterpieces and let that wild, clear soul speak to me. And I think that was a revelation for me because very often... I invite people and I love to share things with people, but some of the experience is lost. That day was a perfect day and will always be a perfect day in my heart because that day I met Velasquez at a depth that I could only have done by being completely exposed to him in solitude. And even the most brilliant conversation would have been a distraction from that degree of surrender. And I think it's true of all great meeting between a human being and a great artist of the past. You can't read Rumi while being distracted by distraction. You can't truly enter into the depths of a Beethoven sonata or a Beethoven symphony without truly, truly dedicating real deep time to it. You can't read Montaigne or Shakespeare at the depth that they demand to be read because if you're not really devoted to that, and if you're not devoting yourself in solitude to that. One of the things that Seymour and I talk about is how in order to be the kind of pianist and teacher that he is, he needs to go into solitude so that he can speak with and listen to his great friends. For him, Schubert is his buddy. Schumann is his whispers secrets to him, as he says. Mozart is his pal. Bach is his teacher. So he goes into solitude to commune directly with the spirits of these beings whom he knows to be totally alive, more alive than many of the people you see walking around the streets. So what what you're doing is giving us permission to go to that concert by ourselves. Yes, <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, don't feel funny about, hey, everybody else is in, in a group or a couple or whatever. It's okay. It's only go- okay if it's a great concert and you've been longing to go to it. Be very careful who you choose because 
they might divert you from the meeting that your soul is hungry for. Exactly. I exactly. never feel alone when I'm alone in a concert hall with a great pianist because I'm with him and I'm with Beethoven and I'm with Schubert. I feel sometimes more alone when I'm with someone and not able to completely let my solitude flower in relationship. Exactly. exactly. I think we have to become much wiser and more discerning about how we spend our deep time to be able to live the lives that the divine is really asking us to live. I'm here with Andrew Harvey. He's the author of Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour, and also The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. And I also want to mention another book, Teachings of Rumi, because I know you love Rumi. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Andrew Harvey. He's a spiritual teacher and a mystic, a writer, and he's the author of The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, and also Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour, as well as many, many other books. Um, I would like to talk now about artistic passion. Ah, yes. <laughs> and, and Andrew, uh, uh, in the, in the book, in your conversations with Seymour, you're you're talking about not only how our our artistic passion is is expressed, but it it's not just that that artistry; it's how it affects our whole life. Yes, and I would love for you to share a bit about how do we find that passion. And how do we cultivate it? I think is a question I really, how do we cultivate our passion? Well, in the book, Seymour gives a very deep and very rich vision of how playing the piano isn't just playing the piano. It's coming into relationship with the sacred tradition of music. It's learning how to draw beauty from the piano by a coordination of your whole mental, emotional, and physical being. And he says that it's been his experience that learning how to play the piano dedicated to making the soul of music available to people not only transforms your mind and your heart and your body, but also gives you an inner image of how you can harmonize the whole of your life so as to bring it into a far greater, serener, fuller, more glowing richness and order. So for him, discovering your artistic passion and putting it into practice, whether it's a passion for painting or a passion for poetry or a passion for music, isn't just about deciding what it is you're excited about and doing something. It's about devoting yourself to a rigorous discipline that over time transforms 
everything that you are, the whole way you live. So it's a different idea about practice. Yes. Uh, and so say something about practice because it's that's a discipline. Absolutely. Well, one of the many ways in which Seymour and I meet very deeply is that we're both rid- rigorous disciplinarians about ourselves. You cannot play a great Beethoven sonata without hours and hours of the most demanding practice. And you cannot truly, through grace, master a deep mystical discipline without hours and hours of practice. All great things in this world demand a discipline of attention. And this is one thing our culture has so lamentably forgot. We live in a terrifyingly distracted culture, a culture where everybody's on their iPads and Facebook and nobody seems to be willing to give themselves the time to evolve the kinds of disciplines that would actually transform their lives. I, I think that there's some study and uh, that said that if you want to be a master at anything, you have to put in at minimum 10,000 hours. Absolutely. You, know, and, you can't do anything. I mean, I've done many books of translations of Rumi, and that has been one of the great excitements of my life. But it took me many years of deep prayer and deep meditation and deep reading in the whole history of the time and in the whole history of Islamic mysticism before I felt I could even begin to translate these words of the greatest mystical poet of humanity. I didn't just sit down in Paris after a few drinks and begin to translate Rumi. Years of preparation went into that. And if my translations sing for people, it's because I've learned a great deal from my own inner and outer experience and bringing all of that knowledge to bear upon the translation of the poems. And not just that, if you're translating a great poet, you have to have truly tried to evolve as a poet yourself to bring the whole of your own poetic gifts to bear on giving this master his place. You cannot do, you cannot cook a great meal without learning how to cook. You cannot truly bring up a child without enormous discipline. We've got to reclaim the holiness and rigor of discipline at the core of our lives, not so that we can compete, but so that we can bring our own gifts to their richest flowering. Seymour is very uncompetitive in the way in which he goes about his life, and I hope I am. I'm not interested in being better than X or Y. I'm interested in really being able to evolve the gifts that God has given me to give to others. And that can only happen from a deep commitment to discipline, which never dies. I practice my inner practices deeply every day. I practice writing every day so that I can stay resonant with inspiration. I practice deep forms of physical meditation every day so that I can bring the divine as far as I can into the body. If I didn't do that, I would fall out of tune. So So discipline is a kind of tuning of yourself to the one. And you speak about, you know, your, your... your spiritual discipline. Yes. I mean, it's not just oh, love and light and oh. Are you kidding? No, <laughs> love and light is 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 for amateurs. If you're trying to truly live a spiritual life, truly give your gifts, you're going to have to submit to a very subtle and fierce discipline because 
You're going to be dealing with your own chaotic psyche, your shadows, your karmic past, the suffering of your past. And you're going to be dealing with the tremendous pain and difficulty of the world. And you're going to be dealing with the jagged psyches of the people you're going to be in contact with. And how on earth will you be able to rise tenderly and subtly to each occasion if you're not deeply disciplined? You won't be able to do it. And you shouldn't even try. Because to try and take on, for example, the role that Seymour takes on, the role of being not only a piano teacher, but a guide and a soul guide to people, and the role that I've taken on, the role of being a spiritual teacher and trying to help people in the middle of the most difficult and agonizing situation the world's ever been in, I couldn't possibly even begin to take on that role if I didn't commit myself to spiritual discipline, because otherwise I'd be destroyed by it. Yes. I'm thinking when... uh it, it, and I'd destroy others and you would, unconsciously. I'd cause much more pain than, than would be of any use. Seymour um, is a wonderful music teacher. Yes, but, but he's far it, more than that. But of he's, course. of course, far more than yes. that. But one of the things that he has continued to do that I found interesting, and I think you do this on some level, which you might speak to, is that he continues to compose. Yes. So that's part of being a teacher or yes. even being a concert pianist. He continues to compose, yes. continues to be creative. Absolutely. So Can you speak course, to that? What Seymour said so often, he says it in the book again and again, I can't really be a great teacher of the piano and really help people unless I constantly try and compose. Because unless I take on the difficulties that the great composers have taken on, how will I ever be in the necessary state of awe and reverence before the majesty of their achievement? And how will I be able to communicate just how amazing a Mozart sonata is, just how extraordinary Bach is, just how tremendously passionate and wild and heroic Beethoven is? I have never stopped writing or writing my own poems or really doing all kinds of artistic projects, like making films with great Banafshe Sayad, the famous Iranian dancer. We made a film called In the Fire of Grace, like doing projects in which I'm interviewing wonderful spiritual teachers because I need continually to exercise my own creativity, and I need also to take the risk again and again of trying to formulate what spiritual or mystical help I can offer the planet so that I can truly appreciate what the greatest teachers whom I revere and try and get over to people, teachers, of course, like Jesus and like Rumi, what they go through in their enormous effort to clarify for others the agony and ecstasy of living in God, for God, and for the world. So I know one of the great teachers in your life and spiritual friend in your life was uh, Father Bede oh, Griffith. the most important person for uh, me, yes. I, I, I want to say that, that we had the opportunity to meet him on several occasions. Yes, I remember. Uh, how wonderful. I think you also interviewed him, didn't uh, you? I yes. think Michael interviewed uh, him. Yes, yes. So we have uh, several interviews with him. And I remember I would consider him a, a true Holy man. Oh, God, yes. He was a saint he, and a prophet. I, and, and when we were with him, it's like 
time stood still. (laughs) There was no time. It was expanded in some very mystical way. So say something about Father Bede and who he was to you. Well, Father Bede was really the father of my soul and the cause of my return to the Christ path, not to Christianity, but to an adoration of the Christ and of the very demanding and wonderful path that the Christ laid out for humanity. Without meeting him, my life would have been completely different because I saw in him not just a brilliant intellect, not just an amazing heart, but a profound mystical wisdom. He, he was actually undergoing a very mysterious process at the end of his life, a process of transfiguration, of a complete change of his whole being. And not only did he give me all the beauties I've described, but he showed me that we're in the middle of an evolutionary transformation and no, that there's a next stage of this, which he himself was living I, through. I, I, I want to hear more about that, but I want to tell our listeners, he was a Benedictine priest. He was a Benedictine monk. Monk. He was the leading mystic of the Christian tradition in the 20th century with Thomas Merton. His book... He wrote many books. There's a great collection called The One Light. And for those who met him, he really represented the Christ in the body. And and he, and he lived in India. Yes. And then he incorporated this whole Vedanta. Well, he was uh, open completely to the mystical traditions of all so of the it was traditions. Be, it was it was bigger than much bigger. Christianity. Well, but not bigger expressed. than Christ, but bigger than Christianity. Yes. I was going to say. Yes. So so uh, I I, I want to really share more about Father Bede and, and that transfiguration that you were talking Absolutely. about at the end of his life. But I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Andrew Harvey, and he is an acclaimed poet. He's a novelist. He's a translator. He's a mystical scholar and spiritual teacher. And besides all of that, he also is very active in the world. Uh, uh, he does. He started something called the Institute of Sacred Activism, and we'll yes. talk about that in just a moment. And he's the author of many, many books and films. And his latest book is "Play Life More Beautifully." Conversations with Seymour. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, andrewharvey.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Andrew Harvey, and he is the author of Play Life More Beautifully, Conversations with Seymour, and as well as many, many other books and, and even films. Um, we're talking about Father Bede Griffith. Yes. And you mentioned in the last segment something about the end of his life. He was going into a transfiguration. What do you mean by that? One of the little-known secrets, and it is a tremendous secret of the Christian mystical tradition, is that many of the greatest Christian saints were transformed through their deep relationship with Jesus, not merely in their minds and hearts, but also in their bodies. Many of them, for example, left bodies that did not decay and were dug up many years later and shown as indestructible. So is this part of like the Tibetan tradition of the no, rainbow it's very body? No, di- it's very different. No, okay. no absolutely different, okay. actually. What happened at the resurrection, be it believed, and many Christians believe, is that a new energy entered matter because Jesus appeared in a light matter body showing the next stage of human evolution. And through that enormous second Big Bang, a new creation was created, which in the end will leave humanity to a transfigured body, heart, mind, soul, a new body, new heart, new mind, new soul, a new creation. This is known in the Christian mystical tradition as theosis, becoming one with God. And it's known especially in the Russian and Greek Orthodox traditions. And there have been examples of this, that Seraphim of Sarov, the Curie of Ars, others... Bede himself in his last years lived through this experience. And one of the most amazing moments of my life was when Bede, sitting in his little hut, told me very clearly what was going on with him, which is that after a tremendous experience of, he he nearly died, he had a heart attack and he came close to death and he was invaded by divine love, something completely new started to happen to him, which is that the light was pouring down from the top of his head, skull, through the Sahasrara, and absolutely transforming his mind and heart, getting into his gut, opening up again his sexual center after years of closure, and bringing the whole of his being, light, heart, mind, soul, and body, into a completely new unity with everything. This is a huge key to what is actually, I believe, happening on the planet at this moment, which is what Bede himself told me. He said, look, what I'm going through, you're going to go through. This is the new human. It's being born now in the middle of this vast crisis, and we must, all of us, try and do as much as we can to cooperate with the divine evolutionary will, so as to birth this new human, because we've got so many terrible problems that we're obviously doing nothing real about, and we can only deal with the level of madness and insanity that we ourselves have created if we undergo the rigors of disciplines of this tremendous transfiguration so, process. Andrew, I'm really excited by this because like... <laughs> this is the most exciting thing it, that I've it, ever it learned. It yes. truly is getting to the heart of it. Yes. It's like... Um, we, we, it's not the robots that are good that we're going to create no. that are going to save us. No, it isn't. It's it's our own universal consciousness. It's well, it's a more change. than consciousness. Yes, it's consciousness itself won't change it. Yes, it has to be embodied. It has to become one with our minds, one with our hearts, and actually start to change 
the structure of the body, and it has to be reflected in action. One of the main problems about our spiritual movement is that it believes that just changing the vibrations, as they say, will alter the facts of the world. Obviously, we have to change the systems that are creating this massive injustice and this terrible inequality. And that's why I've started this global movement of sacred activism through my book, The Hope, which was deeply inspired by Bede. After his death, he came to me in many different ways and by an experience of the Christ that I had with my father, I know that we are potentially at the end of the planet. We are threatened with extinction and we will take a great deal of nature with us until we understand that we have to go through a massive transformation that makes us capable and strong enough to put love and wisdom into action on every level. There is no just raising consciousness now. We have to raise our consciousnesses, embody our consciousness, and put it into urgent, wise, focused, radical action. <laughs> I get the commission here. You are commissioning us right <laughs> are you now. Me yes. No, there's no it's other very... way. And it has to happen soon. Exactly. Because we are really on the edge of annihilation. And I know that, that you use and others use the metaphor or the real, actual uh, happening of the caterpillar actually, yes. uh, like, going yes. into the cocoon. And Deepak having helped me understand that, ha- yes. It goes, liquefies. What it. amazing things happen, actually. And this is Deepak, uh, I was talking once, we were sitting in New York. This is Deepak, Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra, right. And he said, look, what happens when... Um, a caterpillar goes into the cocoon is that it dissolves into a gray gunge. But something even more amazing happens, which is that in that gray gunge, which it feeds upon in some mysterious way, all kinds of what are called imaginal cells wake up, start to constellate together, start to come together and form the new body, the body of the butterfly, which then struggles out of the cocoon and is born and is a completely different creature from the caterpillar that went into that process. The whole world is in that dissolution process now. Imaginal cells are waking up and they are the the new sacred activists, the ones who are coming together and saying, we've got to do something from a sacred consciousness. We can't just hate what has happened. We have to go forward in love and enjoy, but we've got to co-create a new way of being and doing everything. Paul Hawking wrote that wonderful book, Blessed Unrest, in which he describes these imaginal cells, and they are everywhere. Now there has to be a much deeper level of organization, a much more coherent level of organization, and a much more urgent approach, because we are really going towards chaos. And I know that one one of the things that we must do that you advocate is we don't do this alone. No. We don't do this in isolation. No. So we need to join in sacred networks of these friendships that we're talking well, about at actually, the beginning in my of this book, program. If you want to really, I, in, in the hope, I lay out what I believe to be is the best map that I can come up with. And it's a map that's being used all over the planet now. And the most important aspect of this map is what I call networks of grace. I had a vision at the end of the process of writing the book. Actually, it was a vision. In, <laughs> it, it took place in a convent. And I saw two great scrolls being unrolled in the sky. And one said, joy is the power. And the other one said, networks of grace. And I'd been studying right-wing organizations and terrorist groups because the dark 
is so much more efficient and so much more active and so much more organized than the light at the moment. And that's the problem. So I was looking for a way of organizing people that could bring people together. And in that phrase, networks of grace, I understood that the revolution of love in action is going to be organized by cells of between six to 15 people who meet together, love each other, celebrate each other, pray together, and choose to do really important sacred works together, works of sacred activism together. And these networks of grace are now all over the planet. And as things get worse, which they will, what will be essential for human survival is millions and millions of interconnected networks of grace working in local communities to really help people stay inspired, stay in touch with deep meaning, and also become effective agents of transformative And And the, the beauty of it is it's not hierarchical. No. It's not like a central location that it's guiding oh, no. all of this. It's individuals in their loving relationship yes. and in their passion for some particular piece that yes. they would like to contribute to. Some particular to. part of the problem that they yes. feel most heartbroken about. When yes. people ask me, what should I do? I always say it's easy if you can stand it. What you should do is what you're most heartbroken about. Follow your heartbreak. Ask yourself the question, what breaks my heart the most? Create a network of grace of other people who are heartbroken about the same thing. Work on that together in your local communities and really experience directly the ennobling and invigorating and encouraging power of sacred relationship. And, and That's in the, the in- key to the transformation of the planet. Yes. <laughs> in that heartbreak where we that's where our spiritual practice comes in yes. because we don't want to get then just dragged down with all the horror of what's happening yes. and then we we want to pull the covers up over our heads. Yes, and so many people have retreated either into denial or into total apathy or into saying there's no hope so why do anything? And 90% of people are in that one of those three categories. But there are those of us on the planet who see absolutely how terrible everything is, but who also know that God is here in us and also believe that when things get really terrible, tremendous opportunities, even at one minute to midnight, are possible if we can truly come together. I want to read um, That's a what quote. We must do, yeah. Yes, I want to read a quote in your book, um, The Hope. And it's... Uh, It's a quote from Robert Kennedy, Mm. and I want to read this quote. He said this in 1966, and it's, um, Each time a person stands up for an idea or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he or she sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And crossing each other from a million different centers of energy— these are those so those small cells of people joining together, these different centers of energy and daring. These those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. And we've seen this in our lifetimes. We've seen what's happened through those tiny ripples in the gay movement. Look. People are marrying now. Isn't this amazing? Yes, it's amazing. We're seeing the walls fall down. Yes. Oh, let's continue with it. Andrew, thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. It Andrew. was my pleasure. I was I'm speaking with Andrew Harvey. And if you want to know more about his work and all of his writings, you can go to his website, andrewharvey.net. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3574. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.